crowded room is filled with tired men and women, children of all ages. Dust from the ground outside slowly makes its way into the crowded dining room, the epicenter, the lifeblood for the Kino Border Initiative. But what's perhaps most striking isn't the busyness of the sounds, the rustling of the feet and bodies, or the tired looks, often of despair, but sometimes of gratitude on the faces of men and women eating their meals. What perhaps draws your attention first is a mural, a large, beautiful portrait of the Last Supper, the first thing you see as you enter the aid center a large, looming reminder of just what is at stake for these immigrants and what is at stake for the people who serve them. We have that, that mural on the side of our aid center that has the, the Last Supper, and I walk in. It's right as, as you walk in the door, it's the first thing that you see on the other wall. And so, so I walk in every day, and I look at, at Jesus with his backpack, and um it's a reminder to me and to the others and on our staff that every single person we're welcoming through those doors is an, uh, is Jesus. I mean, Jesus said, when you're welcoming the stranger, you're welcoming me. And so we have this unique opportunity to encounter Christ at the border and and welcome him as he instructed in, in Matthew 25, and also build church together. I mentioned that we're binational. One of the beautiful things about our church is that it's a universal church that, that, crosses, uh, that stretches across borders, and we're able to live that out in the day in, and day out of our interactions. We can. What I see is really we have the opportunity to be prophetic. We can show this vision of if we really lived church in an ultimate sense, this is what it could look like. This is the story of Latino immigration and the Kino Border Initiative. final episode of a series on the brief glimpse of the history of Catholic immigration to the United States. In the first two episodes, we talked about the first three great migrations of Catholics to the U.S. These great migrations, referenced by historians, represent the periods where the numbers of Catholics increased exponentially from their previous size, often as a result of the political and economic turmoil of an immigrant's homeland. But here's the thing, (laughs) our journey isn't over yet. Because if you've turned on the news really at any point in the last 20 years, you'll know this already. We are living in another great migration. Right now at this very moment, the fourth great migration of a Catholic peoples, our brothers and sisters from just across the border. Now I'm going to be honest here, (laughs) I, uh, I've lost a little bit of sleep over this episode. (laughs) I've tossed and I've turned and I've just, you know, I've just been battling. How, how am I to present the reality of our current situation? And more importantly, perhaps how the church responds to that reality. 
Uh, this discussion, it's just so easily swayed by political lines that it's almost impossible to talk with someone who doesn't already have a formed opinion on the issue. So here's what I am going to do. I'm going to separate this story, this story of Latino immigration, into three parts to make it as clear as possible exactly how we got to this present circumstance of ours and, again, how the church has helped and has failed the Hispanic population. By the way, just in case you're wondering, I will be using those two terms, Latino and Hispanic, interchangeably. Uh, I've been told on good authority by our experts that this is okay. (laughs) I just didn't want to confuse anybody. So for part one, we are going to go back to the beginning yet again. We're going to take a walk through the history of migration of a Latino people. When you look at the history of the church in the United States, you have really two ma- major currents. It is the the church that starts with the, with the thirteen colonies, that has its you know beginnings, if you will, in the in the Archdiocese of Baltimore. But also you have on the south um, the church that actually is brought, and uh, it is within the, the the context of the Church of Spain. So that we have the first mass set actually in what is today uh, the U.S. uh, territory, it took place in St. Augustine. This wonderful man, by the way, is Alejandro Aguilera Titus. I am the uh, assistant director for the Secretariat uh, of Cultural Diversity in the Church, specifically looking at Hispanic affairs, which means that I am the, the lead person for the for the bishop's staff at the national level on Hispanic affairs. Alejandro began our story of Latino immigration with often forgotten point. After the indigenous populations, Spanish speakers were actually the first to settle on our land. Latinos were the first Christians that lived in what is now the United States. The first permanent settlement in the the United States is St. Augustine, 50 years before Jamestown. And this is Dr. Timothy Madovina. I'm professor and chair of the Department of Theology, University of Notre Dame. You will be hearing a lot from these two in this episode. Now, as both Alejandro and Dr. Madovino have said, the presence of Latinos began before the founding of the colonies, mainly settling in places like Florida, but slowly as the country forms boundaries and government structures, more Spanish-speaking peoples start making a life in our land. And it all begins with probably one of the most important points of our entire episode. Here's Alejandro again. The first significant pre- presence of Hispanics in the United States are the Mexican-Americans who were not immigrants. They were the long-standing population in those areas and within the church. If you go to Texas and you talk to Latinos there and you refer to them as immigrants, they will be offended. And the reason they would be offended is that they actually didn't immigrate to the United States. Instead, they were already living in what we now know as various parts of the United States. But at the end of the Mexican-American War of 1848, Mexico lost more than half of its territory to the U.S. California, New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, and parts of Wyoming and Colorado. Or, as Dr. Madovina puts it... And the first large number of Latinos who came into the United States were not immigrants. 
They became part of the United States when the U.S. expanded westward and conquered the northern territories of Mexico, bringing some 100,000 Mexican Catholics into the territories of the United States. They did not immigrate. They didn't cross the border. The border crossed them. And this didn't mean, of course, that Mexican-Americans were just all of the sudden treated equally. Land was often stolen, homes were raided, and governments were completely taken over by the newly arrived white migrants from the East, settling in the newly formed American Southwest. Now, what's important to understand is that while the war established boundaries between the two countries, the border itself was actually incredibly fluid. People would come and go freely, particularly for economic reasons. After the Civil War, for the first time, parts of the South could no longer rely, praise God, on free labor. This creates an economic crisis, of course, and the United States government tried a little bit of an experiment. In an arrangement with China, yes, you heard that right, China, <laughs> Thousands of Chinese workers start immigrating to our land to work for lower wages. And for a period, the system worked and the American economy slowly started to grow. But of course, as so often happens in our history, resentment towards a people not quite like them started to brew among the American population. This Chinese presence uh, at some point was beginning to be rejected. And there was movement within the U.S. Congress to pretty much do away with these immigrants because they were, in a way, having a negative impact in U.S. society. And that anti-Chinese attitude led to the ending of the agreement with labor with China and with legislation keeping Chinese immigrants from entering the United States. And the same thing happened with Japanese immigrants. When the Chinese agreement came to an end, the United States still had an important problem. They had a lot of industry, but they couldn't seem to find enough workers. So because the border was open and travel between the two countries was so fluid, we see in the late 1800s the first migrations of Mexicans for the purpose of finding work in the United States. Employers and the U.S. government discovered that the gold mine of arms was just south of the border. And Mexican workers began to to take on, on, the, on the, the hardest jobs in the U.S. economy, specifically in the area of agriculture. The point of this early history is rather simple. The back and forth fluid nature of the border was simply part of everyday life in the Southwest United States for several decades, actually. That is up until 1924 when the United States government passes a series of immigration laws. We made reference to these laws in the last episode, but for today, what we need to understand are two important points. One, these new laws wildly limit the number of immigrants from specific countries, including places in Europe. And two, it establishes a defined border and a border patrol between the United States and Mexico. But here's the thing. In spite of these laws, the United States employers were still dependent on Mexican workers, particularly in the agricultural sectors, and they weren't willing to give up. 
so quickly. (laughs) And with this desire to keep wages lower, and for hardworking individuals, honestly, we see the phenomenon of the undocumented worker slowly coming to reality. Because the irony is the American economy still needed to grow. And that growth was dependent on the labor that the Mexican workers provided. So kind of a quirk of history or a coincidence of history, at precisely the moment when European immigration was declining, Latino immigration was kicking into high gear with the Mexican Revolution. So just as the European numbers were going down, the Latino numbers in terms of immigrants were going up. But coinciding with the rise of Hispanic population also comes with it a devastating historical moment. The Great Depression crashed into the American way of life and just completely decimated the white and Hispanic populations. The United States government, in the hopes of creating jobs for white workers, authorized massive deportations of the Hispanic people many of whom were actual American citizens. But American employers couldn't survive without cheap labor. And the one place to look for cheap labor was, of course, Mexico. And all of this came to a head after one of the most important moments in American history. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. World War II created, among other things, a crisis of labor within the United States. Thousands of men left to serve in Europe, and all of a sudden, the American workforce couldn't keep up with the wartime demands. So in 1942, the United States government and the Mexican government established what was called the Bracero Program. The Bracero Program would allow massive numbers of Mexican workers to come to the United States for employment. Without this program, the U.S. economy, by the way, might not have survived the wartime period. And even after the war, the program continued, thanks mainly to, again, cheap labor which American employers could afford. But then two things started to happen. First, American employers and the U.S. government started to not live up to their end of the bargain. During the Bracero program, the agreement calls for the growers to provide housing, transportation, wages, health insurance, different things that the agreement calls for. These agreements are almost systematically violated by the growers on the U.S. side, especially in Texas. There is a great deal of abuse of these workers and uh, and that that abuse you know on and off leads the Mexican government to put a pause on the agreement and two the attitude of american society began to change a renewed sense of hope emerged after the victory of war and with that hope came the idea of the american dream and the american identity began to grow 
This is, remember, it's after the Second World War, and there is a movement of, of, you know, creating a national identity again. Now, coinciding with the rise of suburbia, the American dream, and a national identity come two important points for our discussion of Hispanic immigration. First, the Bracero program slowly starts to fall apart. With the full support of the U.S. government, American employers start sending private contractors over the border of Mexico to find cheap labor, sending thousands of undocumented workers to the United States and breaking the agreement of the Bracero program. So just in case you missed that, the U.S. government and U.S. employers created the phenomenon of the un documented immigrant, not the other way around. And two, Latino migration starts originating from places other than Mexico. Puerto Ricans, who, by the way, are American citizens, start coming to the mainland in the 1940s and 50s, settling mainly in urban centers like New York. Cubans become political refugees after the Cuban Revolution in 1959. Cubans are mainly from middle-class backgrounds. They tend to have some kind of wealth, and they establish communities in places like Miami. And then, with the Central American civil wars in the 70s and 80s, more political refugees find their way to America, including Nicaraguans, Hondurans, Guatemalans, and El Salvadorans. As we know, the migration continues to this day, primarily escaping the just horrendously dangerous gangs and violence from different Central American and South American countries and escaping the economic devastation of places like Venezuela and Haiti. I am so very sorry that we can't spend more time diving into the details of this history because frankly, it's important and fascinating, but we have to get to the second part and it's the whole reason for our series. What did the church do? How did the church respond to this new Catholic peoples? break up this second part a little bit because there are of course two ways to look at how the church responds to the migration of a latino people first of course is the historical record if you remember last episode we talked about this incredibly important concept known as the national parish it was how the european catholic immigrants were really able to survive in the late 19th and early 20th centuries in the united states and it was by all accounts an incredibly smart and successful move for the church the church's numbers grew just drastically as a result of the national parish model now to refresh your memory a bit here's how alejandro explains it to build a national parish, you needed three things. You needed significant number of immigrants for that particular country. You need them living within a certain proximity. And these two requirements made it possible to invest on a priest from that country. 
But here's where the story of the church diverges a bit and basically takes a pretty drastic turn from its original national parish model. Because the story of the national parish is really a story about the Northeast and the Midwest. Now, there were many reasons for this, but there was one central point which Alejandro already touched upon and was echoed by Dr. Marovina. Latinos have never had enough of their own clergy to kind of be their representatives in the hierarchical structures of the church in those conversations and so on. So the church had a dilemma. With the sheer numbers of Latino people, thanks to the Bracero program alone, the church couldn't simply ignore them anymore. <laughs> a system had to be put in place. So the first step was figuring out who was going to address this situation. There were no Hispanic bishops at this time. The first Hispanic bishop was Bishop Flores in 1970. So at this time, while Archbishop Lucy in San Antonio and Archbishop Mundelein in Chicago, they helped shape a new policy. The real voice within the church hierarchy on how to address the rising number of Latino immigrants was Archbishop Spellman in New York. And the reason for this was pretty simple. The Puerto Ricans. Many bishops realized that as they had built all of these national parishes in urban and other areas uh, during the time of the great European immigration, now many of the people who populated those parishes were moving out to suburban areas, particularly as you move closer and beyond World War II. So bishops looked at this and said, we have parishes that are underpopulated and in need of repair in the inner city, and we have new immigrant groups arriving. So they gradually decided to do away with the national parish uh, strategy that had served the European immigrants so well. Cardinal Mundelein in Chicago was one of the first to do this, but a real major figure was Cardinal Spellman in New York. As large numbers of Puerto Ricans came to the mainland after World War II, Spellman explicitly started a policy of what were called integrated parishes. The integrated parish structure took off in the middle of the 20th century, partly due to the lack of Spanish-speaking priests, partly due to the lack of financial backing for new churches to be built, and partly because of the rising number of Americans moving to the suburbs. But don't think for a moment <laughs> that this meant Latino immigrants were treated as equals from their fellow parishioners. What often happened instead was existing groups of parishioners, mainly from European backgrounds and often not very far removed from being immigrants themselves. These parishioners would force Latino populations to the margins of their parish communities, sometimes even having them worship outside the sanctuary in places like the basement. And this sometimes had surprising consequences. Take, for example, what happened in the Archdiocese of New York in the middle of the 20th century. Here's Dr. Marovino again. It was an interesting international meeting in Puerto Rico in 1955 between uh, Puerto Rican Catholics in, on the island and the Archdiocese of New York. And one report given was very interesting was to a pastor in Manhattan who said that uh, he had given Puerto Ricans the opportunity to vote on whether or not they would move their mass 
which, of course, the Mass was in Latin, but the preaching and so on was in Spanish, whether they would move it out of the basement into the upper church. And to his great surprise, the Puerto Ricans voted to stay in the basement because they said, if we come to the upper church, they're going to make us shorten the Mass and do away with the traditions that we have brought with us from Puerto Rico. So we'd rather be in the basement, but still have a sense of ownership of the worship and of our own traditions being celebrated, rather than go upstairs in fear that we might lose out on all of that. Now, for me, this story makes clear one central thing. This early model of the integrated parish, whatever the bishop's intentions, just wasn't working well for the Hispanic people. They were often forgotten in their worship centers, and they longed for the same communal worship that they had in their home countries. So out of this period comes a hero, as so often it does in these, in these difficult times. But this hero is a true icon of the implementation of Hispanic ministry in the United States. Uh, one of the great leaders of Hispanic ministry in the Catholic Church has been a, a, a Puerto Rican woman named Encarnacion Padilla de Armas. Encarnacion arrived as a widow with her young son to New York shortly after World War II. And within a few years, she found herself in the office of Father Joseph Fitzpatrick, professor at Fordham University, and she had concerns that the Puerto Rican people had no outreach ministries and no priests to serve their communities. So Father Fitzpatrick asked her to make a report about the situation on the ground. After a few months, along with some close friends, Incarnacion provided a detailed 70-page report about the abuses of the Puerto Rican peoples in parishes throughout the city. Father Fitzpatrick was so impressed that he took the report straight to the cardinal. So think of this. Here's this woman that arrives as a widow, you know, struggling to support her own family. Within a few years of getting in New York, she's in the cardinal's office explaining to him what's needed for Hispanic ministry. And from this report and the work of many other devoted advocates in the middle of the 20th century, the first Spanish Catholic Action Office was formed for the Archdiocese of New York, where Encarnacion would go on to work. But something else happens in the broader culture around this same time, which made a significant impact on how the church would respond to the Latino people. In the 1970 census, for the first time, the Hispanic population had their own category. They were no longer included among the white population in the category of ethnicity and race, but they were counted as a separate people, allowing them to begin to form their own identity. This allows the government and the church to get a sense of just how large this population really was. And so with the census, the people ministering to the Hispanic population, priest, religious, and lay people alike, they begin writing to their local bishops, asking them to respond to the needs of the Spanish-speaking populations. And from this, a decision is made. These priests and, and religious uh, convince the bishops to convene those who are working in Hispanic ministry for an encuentro 
which an encuentro is a very key word, is an ecclesial word that means a coming together for pastoral discernment. The first national encuentro, or ecclesial gathering for Hispanic Catholics, took place in 1972. And the coordinator, by the way, was Encarnacion. Now, the purpose of the Encuentro is, in a sense, twofold. On the one hand, the church gathers the Latino people to ask them their needs, to ask how the church can best minister to them. But the Encuentro also requires a response of the Hispanic Catholics themselves. How are they to form church in the United States? What do they expect from their priests, from their church communities. And perhaps most importantly, the Encuentro allows Hispanic Catholics to finally see themselves as instrumental, as valuable members of Christ's body in the American church. They, for the first time, are forming their own identity. And it is their voices which lead the discussion. Hispanic Catholics themselves come to realize that they are a unique people, that they are a Catholic presence that is from Mexican-American origins, Puerto Rican, Cuban, Dominican, Salvadoran, and so forth and so on. And we see ourselves as a very unique people that has in common a culture, a language, and faith. Jesús nos llama a ir al encuentro de su pueblo en todo lugar. Jesús nos llama a ser misioneros llevando paz y caridad. Hoy es el tiempo de ir al encuentro dando consuelo y sanando el dolor. The church would go on, by the way, to have four additional encuentros over the next several decades. An encuentro in 1977, another in 1985, another in 2000, and just this past year, they celebrated their fifth national encuentro, which had a particular focus on how to respond to the needs and concerns of the Hispanic youth population. On our website, by the way, are some wonderful articles about this. I would wager most of us probably didn't even know that this is what's going on, which is just tragic. But these articles will help you understand just how special of a gathering it really was. There's another way we need to understand how the church responds to the rising Hispanic population. For the most part, our discussions about the church's response have been about Hispanic Catholics in established communities throughout the United States. 
But as we know, the bulk of the discussion of Latino immigrants happens in one location, or perhaps several locations along one border. So how is the church to respond to these brothers and sisters at the border? Well, I think it's time to talk with this wonderful woman. So my name is Joanna Williams, and I'm the Director of Education and Advocacy at the Kino Border Initiative. Kino Border Initiative, an organization within the church with one of the most active presences at the southwest border. Now, the Kino Border Initiative is set up in Nogales, Mexico. We'll get a little bit into their ministry in a minute. But first, let's address its origins. Who, for example was Father Kino. So the Kino Border Initiative is named after Father Kino, who was a Jesuit missionary out here in uh, the area that we currently are in, which at the time was New Spain. Uh, it's uh, Arizona and Sonora. And Father Kino, he both explored this uh, area and, and set up missions, but he really, in that process, tried to defend the uh, different groups, indigenous groups here, from the influence of the Spanish king. Father Kino made a deal with the Spanish government that if the local peoples were connected with the missions in any way, they wouldn't be sent to work in the mines, again at the time in what was called New Spain. Now, while he certainly was not perfect, he was able to engage in incremental advocacy on behalf of the native peoples. And it is in that spirit that in 2009, the Kino Border Initiative was born. Kino Border Initiative was really started after a long tradition of humanitarian aid in Nogales, Sonora. So there were people from parishes or the Missionary Sisters of the Eucharist that were that had all realized the challenge of people who were arriving who were deported um, and brought food to the port of entry to feed people as they initially arrived. The California province of Jesuits conducted a needs assessment along the border, asking the simple question, how could they partner with existing ministries to help the migrants being deported? And out of that assessment, the Bi-National Catholic Organization of the Kino Border Initiative was born. This wonderful organization works with migrants and those who are recently deported in humanitarian aid, education, and advocacy. So the most uh, visible component of our work uh, that happens 365 days of the year and really the heart of our organization is in what we call the comedor, which comedor in Spanish means a dining room. Uh, so we have a small aid center and on the side of the aid center is actually a mural of the Last Supper with Jesus and all and the disciples but dressed in clothes of migrants um, with backpacks and with uh, hats on. And for us, that's that's the day-to-day is we're welcoming people in to this uh, community, to this Eucharist uh, in our aid center as we serve meals. A huge part of Kino's mission is simply sitting with the migrants, many of whom were recently deported, and listening to their stories about their experiences in America and their treatment in American detention facilities. As a result, they often advocate on behalf of the migrants for more humane treatments. Here's just one example shared by Joanna. Just 
yesterday I was talking to a woman who was put in jail for having crossed the border again because uh, crossing the border is considered a crime in the United States. And she um, was just distraught about the conditions in the jail and the fact that she wasn't given pads for when she was menstruating. And so we document this information and then we try to figure out how can we change those conditions so that we wouldn't hear the same thing from another woman. I asked Joanna if there were any stories which stood out for her in the several years of working this mission. And she brought up this one story of a young woman fleeing the just unbelievably terrifying reality of the Guatemalan gangs and an important realization that Joanna had had. Yeah, there's one, I mean, there's so many people that I've met, but but uh, a couple of them that have stayed with me in a particular way. Uh, one is a woman from Guatemala who was in a, um, had started dating somebody and without realizing that that person was involved in the gangs and then started to suffer from his abuse and tried to leave the relationship. So she tried to get away from him, but he and the, his other gang members continued to pursue pursue her. And what struck me about her was sitting with her and and just hearing her cry and say, I never had an American dream. I had no intention of coming to the United States. That was never my dream. And yet here I am because I don't have another option. Um, and she was deported back to Guatemala. And I just still think about her and wonder what kind of life, if any, she's able to have now. And it is here, listeners, when we come to part three. We've talked about the history of Latino immigration. We've talked about how the church has responded both to the established immigrant communities and an example of the gospel in action at the southern border. But now it's our turn. We need to examine our own response, our own failings to our Hispanic brethren. And it might help to first think about the Encuentros. Remember, the Encuentros are the church's way to give the Latino people their own say in their communities, something which they just didn't have for far too long. This mission is, in fact, twofold. Here's Alejandro again. The the process of Encuentro is a process of discernment. How can the church best respond to the Hispanic presence? As the first question of the Encuentro process. And how can Hispanics respond as church? in the United States. It's always the, the two sides come. A huge part of shaping our response to the Latino people is simply listening. Listening to how they have felt, listening to their concerns, or just for Pete's sake, being aware that an encuentro is taking place. And part of this means having to face the hard reality that the church has at points behaved badly. And we must do what we can to rectify that. And this begins, of course, in our own parishes. First of all, those of us who are already, you know, in this country and speak English as our primary language, the descendants of the former immigrants, we've got to remember that people integrate into a larger culture, a dominant culture, from a position of strength. Our ancestors in those national parishes integrated over a period of two or three generations. 
And in their own time, they fully joined into the U.S. Catholic Church or the Catholic Church of the United States. The expectation that the Latino who just arrived in the last year or two is going to immediately join in with the English-speaking group is imposing on our sisters and brothers, our fellow Catholics, a burden that our ancestors never had to accept. So one thing we have to realize is people integrate from a position of strength. You can't force it. Unity does not mean uniformity. And sometimes when we talk about unity, we really mean uniformity. They should give up their background, their, and they should come to, and people even say this, the regular catechism classes or the regular mass, as if somehow the English mass is the regular way of being Catholic and people from another country are doing something extraordinary or different. Allowing our Latino brethren to slowly integrate is essential, but this is done by allowing them to form their own unique cultural communities within our parishes. Now, opportunities for bilingual celebrations, especially on important feast days like Pentecost or Holy Thursday, are just awesome. They're wonderful ways for the entire parish community to come together. But we can't demand immediate assimilation or integration when cultural communities are so important. But there are just, there are so many more ways we can serve members of our own local parishes. But there's also this other question which we have to address, and it's an uncomfortable one. What can I do for my brother or sister at the border? What can I do for the migrant? I asked Joanna from the Kino Border Initiative this, and this was her response. Yeah, I think the absolutely most important is getting to know immigrants in your community. I remember one woman who was deported who'd lived about 10 or 15 years in the United States, and she'd uh, just worked at a, um wasn't a McDonald's, but, but some fast food restaurant. And she had been deported. She was in our women's shelter, and she was speaking with a group of high school students. And she said, you know, all that time in the United States... And I haven't had a single person from the U.S. just stop and ask me, you know, how I was or how did I get there or or what was my story. She said it feels so empowering to have somebody care. And that that didn't happen to me when I was in the U.S. Part of Kino's mission is education. Oftentimes, groups from parishes and schools will come and visit the mission for the simple purpose of sitting one on one and listening to an immigrant and their story. This up close, face to face with the humanity of the migrant is essential for all of us. We have to, we have to approach each as if we are encountering the very person of Jesus. And sometimes this requires changing our own preconceived notions, changing our hearts. As I write this script, a young girl has passed away in U.S. custody at the border. Jacqueline Kayal, I'm so sorry, by the way, if I mispronounced that, but Jacqueline was only seven years old. And while the details of her passing are still unclear, with her death, we come face to face with the uncomfortable reality that the people coming to the border are just like us. 
They are mothers, fathers, sons, and daughters, all looking for a chance at a better life. The death of this sweet girl is a reminder in the absolute worst way of the humanity of the migrant. Whether this migrant is a young girl from Guatemala, a priest from Poland, a grandmother from Ireland, or a hard-working Italian young man. Each of us is united as daughters and sons of God, and each of us deserve basic human rights. This story has been, uh, it's been one of the hardest for me to cover, because it seems we have forgotten how to have any sort of discourse about immigration in America. And in a sense, Catholics have no real home in the American political discourse. I had no hidden objective here in reporting on this historical record. I simply wanted to tell the story of the immigrant church past to present. But I will say this, at the heart of these three episodes, this series on the immigrant church, was the desire to form a connecting bond, immigrant to immigrant, past to present. We have no desire to talk policy and laws in this podcast. I am not an expert, and I just wouldn't feel comfortable. But I do have a desire to talk about the basic love and care we can show to our brothers and sisters, regardless of your political perspective, honestly, from the Hispanic Catholics in our parishes to our brothers and sisters at the border. Our mission as disciples of Jesus is to stand up for the marginalized members of our communities. And my prayer as we leave today is that each of us can figure out just one small way that we can do that better. Thank you so very much to the wonderful, amazing experts we've spoken to for this episode, especially to Joanna and the Kino Border Initiative for letting me talk about their work. By the way, the song you heard in today's episode was called Nuestra Alegría by Ivan Diaz. I'm so sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong, <laughs> but it was actually a song written for the recent Encuentro gathering. You can find this song on our website. Thank you so much to Spirit and Song and specifically Jared for working with me so I could use it for this episode. We are off, folks, for the next few weeks before our final series um, in this season on Catholic culture. Have a very, very, very blessed Advent and a very Merry Christmas. And we'll see you in a few weeks.